One of the um, important technological developments besides amplification, which we sometimes uh, take for granted, one of the important technological developments that was actually in place before the Reformation, and it helped to facilitate the, the, the spread of the ideas that uh, really first fanned into flame in Luther's Germany, technological development was the printing press. And so, for example, Martin Luther's writings, um, they were able to be reproduced and, and spread quickly through Europe. It was also helpful, the printing press, uh, was also helpful because for centuries, common, especially European peasants, uh, common European men and women were largely illiterate. Um, but now there was an increasing opportunity for people, especially those who are churchgoers, to learn to read. Up until uh, this time period, the Roman Catholic Church really had held a monopoly on the scriptures, kept them in Latin um, and not in the native languages of the people. So often you would go to church or mass, as they say, and you wouldn't be able to understand what was being said. But the reformers, they saw the need to get the language or the, the Bible translated into the native languages of the people and distributed and printed and distributed as much as possible, at least to the churches that were following in their theological footsteps. This was especially true, this idea of getting especially the scriptures, excuse me, especially the scriptures spread, translated and spread. It was especially true of the great Genevan reformer, John Calvin. Calvin is sometimes accused of not caring about evangelism, but that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, between the years of 1555 and 1563, Calvin's church in Geneva, Switzerland, sent 88 missionaries to France, Calvin's native country. And during that time, during those about eight years, they sent 88 missionaries, uh, about 2,150 what we would now call Protestant churches were planted there in France. Again, Calvin understood the importance of getting the scriptures into the language and the hands of the people. And so when the New Testament was first translated into French um, and printed for sort of mass distribution at that time, Calvin wrote a foreword. And in this foreword, he traces out, really, the, the biblical storyline. He, 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 he mentions the, the messianic promises that are seen throughout Scripture. He shows the supernatural unity of the Bible's message and the significance of the gospel revealed in God's Word. I, I want to read to you just, just a part of what Calvin wrote. He says this, Without the gospel... Everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches are poverty. All wisdom folly before God. Strength is weakness. And all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God. 
brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak, strong, fools, wise, the sinner, justified, the desolate, comforted, the doubting, sure, and slaves, free. It is the power of God for salvation of all those who believe. It follows that every good thing that we could think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, Sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back, combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation, damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death, dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. For all these things which were to be weapons of the devil in his battle against us and the sting of death to pierce us are turned for us into exercises which we can turn for our profit. If we're able to boast with the apostles saying, O hell, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? It is because of the Spirit of Christ promised to the elect. We live no longer, but Christ lives in us. And we are by the same Spirit seated among those who are in heaven, so that for us the world is no more, even while our conversation is in it. But we are content in all things, whether country, place, condition, clothing, meat, and all such things. And we are comforted in tribulation, joyful in sorrow, glorying under vituperation, which means abusive language, abounding in poverty, warmed by our, in our nakedness, patient among evils, living in death. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole counsel of Scripture, to know truly Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. John Calvin was able to put into words there what we mean when we say that the gospel changes everything. Sometimes Christians have trouble wrapping our minds around 
um, the gospel. We don't know what to say when we have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people sometimes, right? Sometimes it's just easier to, to do acts of kindness and, and then say to one another that we are being the gospel, which is actually impossible. Because the gospel is a specific message to be proclaimed. It is, in fact, a doctrine to be taught. In fact, all of Christianity, all of Christianity depends on one doctrine. The Apostle Paul wrote in his, in his opening remarks to the Corinthians, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He had said of himself and, and really of, of all of the apostles, we preach Christ crucified. And by the time we get up to chapter 15, where we are this morning, Paul gets even more specific, and he calls uh, the good news of Jesus Christ the doctrine, the teaching of the church that is of first importance, of primary importance. B.B. Warfield, um, who is sometimes called the Lion of Princeton, he called it the cardinal doctrine of our system. On it, all other doctrines hang. And it has to be, as we saw last week in our study, it has to be the doctrine that is preached and received. It is this doctrine that determines our status or our standing before the Lord. It's this doctrine by which we are being saved and sanctified, being made holy, and it is this doctrine that we must hold fast. So if you haven't already, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Let's pray again. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Help us to understand, help us to put the, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, Lord, that that would be at the forefront of our minds each day, that we would be a people who are thankful. Transform us into Christ's likeness, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So within the church, um, the broad church, the church out there, Within the church, there is confusion regarding the doctrine, the teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. The doctrine of the gospel. Um, essentially, there's often a, 
actually a conflating of law and gospel. So, so here's what I mean. Uh, I mentioned this a minute ago, but sometimes well-meaning Christians, um, this is especially prevalent in the culture of youth ministry for some reason, or churches that are like grown-up youth groups, um, they call for Christians to go out and be the gospel. And they usually mean by that, go out and do good works. And it's obviously true I want to be clear about this. We are saved to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it's also true that God's good and perfect law informs our good works. Yet the gospel must come first. The message, the proclamation of the gospel must come first. And it's vital that we understand that the gospel isn't just some sort of nebulous thing out there, like the force. It's an actual statement of fact. The gospel is first and foremost a truth claim. In fact, it's likely that the statement that Paul delivers in specifically in verses 3 and 4, it's likely that that was actually an early church creed or confession, but we'll come back to that here in a moment. But as I said, it is vital that the gospel come first of first importance. And it must come first because because of this phrase in these verses that says, for our sins, for our sins. Let me read again verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul is continuing a thought here uh, that he began at the beginning of the chapter. We looked at it last week. And he's very specific as to the thing preached. But he's also clear that this message that he is preaching, that he has preached to them and they have received, he is clear that that message isn't original to him. He's simply passing it on like like a baton. Or, or like a tradition. In his 1859 sermon, um, Christ Precious to Believers, that's the name of the sermon, Charles Spurgeon quoted a Welsh minister. So I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon quoting an unknown Welsh minister. So this is the quote. I have never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that is not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. Now, we would be able to argue with the exegesis of that a little bit. But the point is this. We preach Christ crucified. So I could say to you, I ought to be able to stand in front of you and say, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This creed, this confession was passed on to him. He just simply simply delivered what he also received. He said that before, actually. 
If you turn back a couple of pages to chapter 11, verse 23, you'll see a very familiar verse, very familiar to us because I, I think I read it every single week. Chapter eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, tradition, the thing received and passed on, tradition isn't all bad, right? The message of the gospel as well as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, was passed on from generation to generation. And we have it in Scripture. So it's likely that probably sometime after Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, um, that first sermon that we see in the book of Acts, it's likely that the, that the church summarized Peter's points and developed this sort of creedal confession that we see there in verses 3 and 4. Let, let me list, just listen for a second. Let me read a couple of um, Peter's points that he makes in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Verses 23 and 24, he says this. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then a little bit later in verse 38, Peter says this, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter received, uh, Paul rather, received this doctrine from Jesus himself and then he also spends some time with the other apostles and he tells us, uh, in fact, in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 12, he says this, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 15 uh, down to 19 of Galatians 1, he says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him, Jesus, among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and I remained with him 15 days, Paul says. But I saw none, none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. There's more um, of the history of Paul's conversion that you can read in the book of Acts and Galatians. He actually recounts it a couple of times in Acts. Um, you can look at his training for gospel ministry. You can look into that later. But the point is this. Paul is established, he's establishing himself as a credible witness. And he's simply passing on the message that Christ has given him. The message that Christ died for our sins. For our sins. Of course, this is the beginning of this most important uh, doctrine. Jesus died on the cross. This is a historical fact, by the way. Jesus died on the cross at a moment in history. Um, a little over 2,000 years ago, the man Jesus Christ physically died on the cross. That's not in dispute. Even his enemies understood that Jesus died on the cross. In fact, the fact that he died 
that he was resurrected, I would go so far as to say, and Christians for 2,000 years now, would go so far as to say the fact that he died and was resurrected are both historical facts. They happened in history. But their meaning, the why behind it, that has to be interpreted by Scripture. And the hinge here in understanding why did Jesus die, why did Je- was Jesus resurrected, is this phrase, for our sins. This is the connection, I've mentioned God's law, this is the connection to God's law. See, sin is an affront to God. It is any breaking of God's law in thought, word, or deed. Chapter 6 of the 1689 Confession puts it like this in the first paragraph. It says this, God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that they would have led that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating of the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. And then the second paragraph says this. It's a little shorter. It says, By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them. And through this, death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. The book of Romans. Romans puts it like this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So when Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul says that Christ died for our sins, we actually can see that the word for has a couple of different meanings. Um, He died because of our sins, and he died to pay for them, to make an atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Uh, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died for, for our sins, that we might be made the righteousness of God. I already read a little bit of this, but but listen to um, Romans chapter 5. Paul explains this pretty, pretty clearly, actually. Um, Actually, beginning at the very end of chapter 4, the very last phrase in chapter 4, speaking of Jesus, he says, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When the gospel says that Christ died for our sins. When Paul writes this here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, it means that he paid the penalty. It means that he made the atonement for all those who did receive him, for all those who called upon his name. And all of this, all of this was previously written of in the scriptures. It was, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Paul says it repeatedly. Here he uses the phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. Let me read again verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God's purpose of redeeming for himself a people for his own possession was established, his purpose for doing that was established before the foundation of the world. And it was progressively revealed throughout the scriptures, all through the Old Testament. Again, the, the 1689, chapter 7, article 3 says this. This is a summary. It says, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam at the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms in which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel was promised in the garden. The gospel was promised in his covenant with, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. The good news of an eternal king was promised in his covenant with David. The promise of salvation is seen throughout the prophets and the writings. Think of Jeremiah in particular, Ezekiel. It is impossible to know, uh, actually in looking at this, when he says in accordance with the scriptures, it's impossible to know if Paul had a specific passage in mind, or several even. But when Peter was preaching in that sermon in Acts chapter 2, he quoted from Joel, the book of Joel, the minor prophet Joel, 
And he spoke of David in the Psalms. We could go to Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 to see Jesus' suffering on the cross. When we think of the gospel, we might think of Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10, which says, Therefore my heart was glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. That's the resurrection. Jesus himself, he quoted the opening of Psalm 22 when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a psalm of, that begins with suffering, but it's followed by hints of, of resurrection and, and an outright praise. L- listen to a little more from Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Psalm 22, think of Jesus on the cross. And again, it says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. An evil company, uh, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's hard to read those verses, at least some of those verses, and not think that they are really about Jesus Christ on the cross. Then, of course, Jesus himself He said in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, as they're walking on the road to Emmaus with some disciples, and they don't know who he is, but this is the risen Christ. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This, of course, leads us to the proof of the resurrection, and that is that he appeared. He appeared. Pick it up in verse 5. Let me read 5, 6, and 7. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. Let's stop there. We all understand um, that his burial is actually serves as proof of his death, right? If you bury someone, we assume that that person is dead. We assume that. We all understand that. We understand that this is proof. It's generally true. The Romans actually knew what they were doing when it came to crucifixion. So the fact that he was buried, as Paul lays it out here in verses 3 and 4, it bears witness to the fact that he was dead. Well, along those same lines, the account of his appearances to others, 
And he appeared too, as it says here several times. The account of his appearances to others uh, confirm the reality of his resurrection. There is testimony that they saw the risen Christ. See, what Paul is doing here is actually building a legal case. He's saying to the church at Corinth, go find these people and ask them. Ask the eyewitnesses. And what's, what's interesting, um, I found it anyway interesting, is that this word that is translated in the ESV as appeared several times here, when it's used in the, the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they all used, it's used as a technical term for the appearance of God or sometimes his messengers. Let me read three where he appears to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. In Genesis 26, verse 24, we see it again. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring my servant Abraham's sake, for my servant Abraham's sake. And then finally, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so this tells us something about the appearances that we read about here in 1 Corinthians 15. This tells us that, he, that he just, this doesn't mean that he simply was spotted that he was seen. I think some translations even say that he uh, was seen. That isn't really what it means. It means that Jesus took the initiative. It means that he made himself visible to them. He made himself be seen. He appeared to real people who really saw him. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. He appeared to the twelve, which just means his disciples. Judas was dead by then, by the way. The 12 was how they referred to the group of disciples that followed. He's talking about the group. Um, you know what Paul is doing here? Enlisting the people that Jesus appeared to? He, he's actually not giving a list of all the people that the risen Christ appeared to. Um, because, for example, he leaves out the first person that he appeared to, which is Mary Magdalene. Do you know Why? Probably because in that time and that culture, she would not have been able to testify in court. At that time, women were not seen as, uh, by their society as reliable witnesses. He's not saying, don't go talk to her, she's not reliable, right? That's not what he's saying. He's building a legal case, and he's giving legal proof. They can certainly go and talk to Mary Magdalene. That's why it's in the Bible, for us to understand that. But he's saying at that time and in that place, go talk to these legal witnesses. He's building proof. Go talk to these eyewitnesses. There are 500 of them that he appeared to at once. Most of them are still alive. Although we remember that he's writing this probably a little over 20 years after the resurrection. So it is likely, and he's saying, some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died. And then he mentions James who was the Lord's own brother. 
And James had become the pastor of the Jerusalem church and was therefore a very important leader of the early church. And he was a a highly credible witness. So while the rest of the apostles are witnesses to Christ and, and they've gone to the ends of the earth, James is findable. James is still in Jerusalem. Go talk to him. If you need to talk to somebody, go talk to James. He was Jesus' own brother. He's right in Jerusalem. But last of all, Paul himself is also an eyewitness. And he lays out a little bit of his testimony here that we know from Acts chapter 9 and a few other places. And his story can only be seen. We only can read about Paul and his conversion as a story of grace. Grace. Pick it up in verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. I just want to briefly point out two things about what Paul says about himself here. See, not only does Paul call himself the last, last of all, he also says that he is the least, least of all. But do you see that phrase, the ESV translates this as one untimely born? The Greek there, um, I wouldn't be able to pronounce it, doesn't matter anyway. The Greek word there, it actually means, is often translated, a stillborn child. Or or even in some cases it can be translated, this is a little bit graphic, but it can be translated an aborted fetus, an aborted baby. And every time that phrase is used in the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament, it's used metaphorically for someone who is in absolute dire straits. Someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins. This is why Paul says, when he refers to himself as one who is untimely born, one who is a stillborn baby, that's why he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins. Paul was God's enemy, but Christ appeared to him. And instead of striking him dead, he, instead of pouring out his wrath on him, he poured out his grace. But God made him alive. And as a result, as a result of God making him alive, Paul was compelled, because of the grace of God that was with him, he was compelled to deliver to them what he also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians themselves were evidence that Christ's grace was not in vain. But as he had said already, it's not about the preacher, verse 11. It's about the message preached. It doesn't matter who preached it. Paul will even say that about people who were preaching for bad motives. They were preaching truth for bad motives. 
As long as the gospel is being proclaimed, amen, he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As we leave this morning, and we think of, we're going to take communion in a minute, where we eat and bread and proclaim his death until he comes. Think of that image, that awful image, and I'll just say, of one untimely born. Think of what Paul is really saying. I was born dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was dead. But God, because of the great love with which he loved me, made me alive together with Christ. By grace, I have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. The message of the gospel is a message that is to be proclaimed. It is a message that is to be received. It's a message by which we stand. It's a message by which we are being saved, conformed to the image of Christ, being made holy, and we're holding fast to this message that was delivered to you, that I delivered to you. That is of first importance. If you hear nothing else, hear this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It sounds so stupid, doesn't it? It sounds so stupid. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. It is what gives us life. Pray with me. Father, as we consider that without Christ we are um, as one untimely born, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But, but God. Lord, as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the message that we proclaim, this is all we have. We don't have cool programs. We don't have good works. Apart from the gospel, we have nothing. Apart from the gospel, we are not even Christians. Apart from the gospel, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to the truth that Christ died for our, for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again according to the Scriptures. Further, as Hebrews tells us that he ascended to sit at your right hand where he always lives to intercede for us, where he reigns and when he will return. Lord, as we come to your table today, we don't, we don't presume to come based on our own righteousness or because we're good people. We are 
we are like the ancient Israelites hauled off into Syria because of our sin. We come, Lord, because of Christ. We come because you are a merciful and gracious God. Because you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so, Lord, we come to your table with hearts of thankfulness. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come, that you will again have compassion on us, that you will tread our iniquities underfoot, that you will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea, that we may taste and see that the Lord is good, that blessed is the man who takes refuge in you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.